Hi everyone, WD here. Today, I'll be interviewing Gary L. Friedman. He's been improving phones since the age of 11, and in 1985, he invented the world's smallest phone. It could fit in the sole of a Nike shoe. He also spent a decade at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's a passionate photographer, and you'll see how he used his inventions to perfect his photos. Hi, Gary. How are you doing? Very well. How are you? I'm great. So, you've been improving phones since the age of 11. Could you tell me how you found those extension phones? Well, I have to set the stage here. Back in the, in the day, it was illegal to have a telephone extension that you didn't pay the phone company for. You couldn't just go to your big box electronic store, buy a telephone extension and plug it in. You could only rent it from the phone company. And even then, it was very expensive. So, and our, our family didn't have a whole lot of money. So a friend of mine was actually in the construction business. And every time he would go in to rehab a building, people would leave telephones behind. So he would grab a couple of them and give them to me because he knew I liked to play with electronics. So just through experimentation, I learned how they worked and how you can make it ring and not ring. I learned how the push button bones worked. And he was able to supply me with what seemed like an endless supply of telephone extensions. Wow, that's amazing. And after you improved those phones, you decided to enter the UCLA engineering competition in 1984, which you won. Could you tell us with what invention you won that? Uh, that's a good question. Um, let me backtrack a little bit. Because I was known for playing with telephones and I made modifications to these phones and I would put a hold button in there, I would put an amplifier and a speakerphone um, and other things where I could actually listen into what my brothers and sisters were saying. Of course, I don't have any sisters, but never mind. Um, so I became well known for being able to modify telephones. One day, a lawyer came to me saying, I've got a law firm. I've got all these lawyers that are just can't stand using this new alternative long distance calling service because you got to dial too many numbers. You got to dial a number, local number. You got to wait for the thing to answer. You have to dial a five digit access code. Then you have to dial the area code and the number like you normally would. And that's, that's ridiculous. Can you build us a device that will slap onto the side of our big expensive business telephones and do all that complex repetitive dialing for us? So I actually came up with something. This is when I was in college, right? And I was really bored during college, so I just jumped at this project. I designed the circuitry. I programmed the uh, EEPROMs. I designed the printed circuit board and hand-edged it, each one. We made 20 of these. And then I populated it. I installed everything, and it worked. By the time everything was done, all you had to do to make a long-distance call was push the button and then wait. This device would dial the local access number, wait and then dial a five-digit access code, and then the lawyer could dial the area code of the number like they normally would. So this was a, a nice idea. I was going to Cal State Northridge at the time, a different university, but I had heard through a friend that UCLA, their electronics department, was having an uh, uh, electrical engineering design contest. So I entered, and I won against a lot of other more complex things. I think they liked my invention because it had actual utility and solve the real problem. And the first prize was a Hewlett Packard 41C calculator. That was a big deal back in 1982 because if you were an engineering major or just an engineer, if you wanted to do calculations, you needed a slide. When the first scientific calculators came out, it revolutionized everything. 
but they were extremely expensive. The HP 41 calculator was about $400, but it was also the best in the world. Not only could it do scientific calculations, obviously, it could handle letters and numbers. It could remember the formulas if you typed them in, even when you powered it off. And this, by the way, was a secret weapon for me. I could cheat on my exams that were close book, close note. Not only could it do all that, but it also had four input-output ports in the back. You can plug things into the back and have it do useful things. Not many people did that, but because I was a hardware guy, right? I like to build electronics. I built a lot of circuits that could plug into the back of that calculator and do useful things. In the photographic world, the three biggest inventions I had for the 41 was a, uh, a automatic controller for my camera. If I'm taking time exposures at night, usually you keep your camera on a tripod and you keep your shutter open for a long period of time, but you never know how long to keep the shutter open. So you try different amounts. Two seconds, four seconds, eight seconds, 16 seconds, 32 seconds, and that gets tedious. And then after you get your film back from the processor, then you can pick out which exposure was the right one. Well, I programmed my calculator to do exactly that. It plugs into the camera. Well, the camera plugs into the calculator. And the calculator will try different values for you while I'm inside where it's warm, sipping hot chocolate. So it can do all the tedious work for me. And then later on, your processed film gets back and you can pick out the right exposure. The second thing I did with my calculator was to automate my darkroom. I had a black and white darkroom downstairs. And that's a very tedious thing if you've ever done darkroom work on your own. So it was both a, a negative analyzer and a print timer. So it would you put the negative in the enlarger, and I had a little tiny light-sensitive device plugged into the calculator. So I took three readings of the negative, and the calculator would determine how long should the enlarger stay on in order to get the good exposure, and what should my uh, filter number be. And it would make a recommendation. I put in my paper, I hit a button, and the calculator turns the enlarger on for exactly that amount of time. And then I take the paper and put it into the three different chemical baths. I also program my calculator to give me audible chirps for every time the paper needs to be moved from one chemical bath to another. So this way I can just concentrate on the creative stuff and the calculator would keep track of all the dog work, like when is it time to move a print from this chemical bath to that chemical bath. It saved me a lot of time and it made the process much more enjoyable. There's a third device, and I don't know if your listeners will know much about what a slide projector dissolve unit is, but if you're a photographer and you want to give artistic slideshows, artistic presentations of the images you took, you would shoot slides and you would put them into a slide projector. And normally, slide projectors change images very harshly. You see a bright image, and then it's black, and then it's bright again. And the, the more nuanced photographer would rather have two slide projectors and have one gently fade off while the other one gently fades on, and one image is said to dissolve into the other. It's called a dissolve unit. And the units that were available for sale did not meet my particular needs because I wanted to have it go with synchronized music and, and narration and all that. So I built my own from scratch. Uh, and this one used a more advanced calculator, not the HP 41, but a, something called the 71, which had a faster processor. And I built the hardware, I programmed it in assembly language, I took the pictures, and I put the whole show together. That was probably my crowning achievement for HP calculators. After college, you went to work for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory for a decade. Yes. Could you tell us what you worked on? That was the best. 
best job that any engineering major would ever, ever want. Uh, I got to, you know, okay, uh, let me explain what JPL does. Unlike all the other NASA sites that deal with the space shuttle or astronauts just orbiting the Earth, JPL is the only NASA site that builds robots and sends them beyond the Earth's orbit. It sends them to the different planets and different parts of the solar system and sends back pictures and other scientific data so we can get a good feel for what's out there. The Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft are probably NASA's most well-known achievements, although a lot of your uh, listeners probably are more familiar with the Mars rovers, Pathfinder, Sojourner. Um, th- those are famous also, but Voyager was, was the big one. Before we sent out Voyager, the only thing we knew about Neptune was its name and its position. And Voyager was a big robot. It could send back pictures. It could analyze the atmosphere. It, it told us something about the moons. Uh, we discovered all sorts of things about the solar system because of Voyagers 1 and 2. Um, my job was to take the data once it hit the Earth and then process it and deliver it to all the principal investigators that were scattered around the country. So we turned the, the, it turned it from ones and zeros into knowledge. So then they, then they could analyze what are we actually seeing over there. Um, it was very exciting and very, very cutting edge. You stopped uh, working for NASA for a long time now. What do you do these days exactly? That's a good question. Um, I can probably fast forward a bit. The reason I left NASA was because I had a lot of patents that I wanted to learn how to commercialize. So I needed to learn how to run a business. And I'm not going to bore you with all the different businesses I tried to, tried to start and, and couldn't succeed. Uh, but I will say that I now writing books. I'm now taking pictures. I have a stock photography website. I took my life savings and tried to start, try to get other investors to start up a new company. I couldn't do it. So I eventually gave up and I decided to start a new business where I don't have to rely on anybody else in order to be successful. So Google freedomanarchives.com and that's spelled F-R-I-E-D, like fried, M-A-N, freedomanarchives.com. And there are book and magazine editors around the world who license my images for their publications. In addition to that, I also write camera-specific books. If you buy a really expensive digital camera and can't understand the instruction manual that came with it, you problems and almost eventually you'll get to my books because people recommend them highly. Uh, I will make a 600 and 700 page book detailing every single function of every single camera and explain it in exact English. Uh, well suited to this because I have the technical background, but I also understand the photography side. So I'm using the left and the right side of my brain. And I think that that's what makes me unique in this space. So I'm taking licensing pictures. I'm writing books about digital cameras. I'm also traveling the world with my wife, uh, giving two-day uh, beginning photography seminars. If you want to be able to get wow pictures with it, with whatever camera you have, you rely on what we used to use back in the 1960s, before there was Photoshop, before there was digital cameras. But that now as well. Of course, we had to cancel a lot of seminars because of the pandemic. And lastly, I'm now a distributor for a really cool musical instrument called the Zafoon. Uh, I'll spell it for you. It's X-A-P-H-O-O-N. It looks like a recorder, but it sounds like a cross between a, a saxophone and a clarinet. If you play it with a place where sound echoes off the wall, it sounds more like a saxophone. I have one here if you'd like to hear me play it. I'd love to. Let's see here. I'll take the cap off. I'll put the reeded mouthpiece into my... I'll just play a quick few notes. Mm-hmm. 
has such a nice, low, deep, rich sound, more than that recorder that you know you and I grew up with in elementary school. So yeah, I was such a fan, I became a distributor. You can now buy the bamboo and the plastic instruments on our website, zafoon.com. My audience knows all about it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Big World from a Small Island. Island.